0: If you will take your Bibles this morning, please to Second Corinthians, again, chapter four. We're actually going into chapter five this morning, but this is one of those places where, if I had uh, been responsible for placing chapter divisions, I would have chosen the sixteenth verse of the fourth chapter to begin the to make it the first verse of the fifth chapter. This little section began with that phrase, we do not lose heart. Two places in this passage where that is mentioned, the first verse of the, of the fourth chapter. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, Paul says, we do not lose heart. So by way of uh, review, if you please, just a, a bit of review, and to prepare us for the verses here, that follow this this second declaration, uh, let us let's just remind ourselves about what we learned last week. Paul begins this fourth chapter with "therefore," which uh, uh, indicates that he's now ready to draw conclusions from his arguments in the previous chapters. We we're not going to go into that right now, but we do want to. Uh, see that here he is using this to explain his perseverance in the gospel ministry. Despite all the opposition and suffering that he has had to endure because of it. He tells us, frankly, it's God's mercy that he is even in it. He had been blind to God's truth. Very zealous For the old covenant, willing to put people to death who he saw as departing from the Judaism that he embraced. So he became a very violent persecutor of the church. And we saw this in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 12 to 16, where he describes it. He rather deserved the wrath of God. But he says, he, I obtained mercy. When Jesus Christ was revealed to me there on the road to Damascus, stopped them short in his violent persecution. Who are you, Lord? I am, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. At that point, I believe Paul really expected that God would crush him to the earth and throw him into eternal damnation. But he said, God was merciful to me. And he told me, I'm going to send you to preach... This gospel that you fought, that you have resisted, that you have denied. I'm going to send you to preach that very gospel, even to the kings of Israel. God had opened his eyes to the truth, and now he is showing him that Paul, showing Paul here, that he purposed to use him to display. In him, his perfect patience as an example to others. Wow, what a blessing. And Paul demonstrated an important fact here that we need to consider. Success in ministry must not focus on the minister, but on the one the minister is to exalt, Jesus Christ paul's really telling us that oftentimes the sufferings the discouragements the trials the the uh opposition that ministers of the gospel receive is to remind them that it is not them that it's God himself, and they that really the opposition that they're receiving is is only secondary because they are the visible tangible representations of the God they hate. That the enemy hates. They can't reach God, so they're going to take it out on his servants. So if so Paul here reminds us of two important facts, One of them is that God is the only one who can open blind eyes. But he does this through his servants who preach the gospel. The minister of God takes the word of God and he presents the word of God and the Holy Spirit of God takes that word and opens the eyes of those who are listening to the word of God, opens their ears to hear it, and opens their heart to receive it. And Paul uses the analogy there of the creation. The God who spoke light into existence has has spoken into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's something the preacher can't do. I cannot do that but I can tell you what this book says and and for that reason the apostle was very clear it is my it, it is it is incumbent upon me to make sure that I do not mishandle it that I do not compromise it that I don't try human tricks and efforts to convince people of the truth because I couldn't do it anyway And when people do use these tricks and so forth to to try to convince people to to believe the gospel, and if they get them to, to make a decision, that's basically all it is. It's a decision that they've made that has no saving value to anyone, except that their own eyes are blind and they've been fooled into thinking they're right with God when they're not but their resultant lifestyle will prove otherwise. And then the second thing here is that uh, the burden to see the gospel change hearts and the grief resulting from the rejection and opposition of that gospel, it can be very difficult to the preacher. And it is. In fact, Paul said, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength That we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. There in the first chapter of 2 Corinthians, verses 8 and 9. Paul allowed, or excuse me, God allows this burden so that we would not, as Paul stated, rely on ourselves, but on God. Who raises the dead? That's also in chapter 9, verse uh, verse, 1. Chapter 1, verse 9. The Lord wants glory to go to Him. In uh, Romans, He closes that 11th chapter, which deals with this issue of of, uh, the Jews and their blindness and the gospel coming. Gloriously to the Gentiles, and Paul's warning the Gentiles: Don't you become proud and arrogant over that fact? Because God's able to change the 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 situation there overnight. And and then he says, then he concludes this with a with a, a glorious. Uh, pr- uh, Praise, a doxology if you please. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways and inscrutable His ways. And he closes that chapter in verse 36 there, Romans 11, with this, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. So to Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And that's how then he begins the 12th chapter. I appeal to you, therefore. Therefore, goes back to that verse. From him and to him, or through him and to him are all things, so that he alone gets the glory. So, I appeal to you, brethren, by what the mercies of God again that you present your bodies, your bodies, a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your latreia, your your service of worship. God wants to get all the glory. Not us. He wants to, all to go to Him. Therefore, the apostle declares... We do not lose heart. Doesn't matter how discouraging the circumstances of our situation may be. We are confident that God is fully in charge and will bring about His perfect will. And again, He says we do not lose heart because He says on Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us. Again, there in chapter 1, verse, 6, verse 10, to deliver us again. Paul already has seen the deliverance of God. And, he, and from one difficult circumstance to another difficult circumstance, he sees the deliverance of God, and therefore he says, we are assured of this, and we've set our hope on this that we're going to see Him deliver us yet again. And and I think in this case, from the situation that he finds himself in with respect to the Corinthian church. Paul had stated as much there in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10, which reads, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God. Who is the Savior, the Deliverer, uh, and Preserver of all people. Especially of those that believe. He He can deliver anyone, anyone, out of any situation that is difficult. But He, especially those who belong to Him, who are true believers... And this is the foundation then of patience and perseverance. So in Romans 5, verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. Oh, I wish I didn't have to go through all these difficulties. No, thank the Lord for them because they are God's means of making you a better person and of preparing you for something greater. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. That's Second Corinthians six four. Boy, I don't I don't have to go through the things Paul did. At least I haven't had to. But Paul said what it did, it, it it enabled great endurance. And really, this is what Jesus meant when he declared there in Matthew 24, 13, the one who endures to the end will be delivered, will be saved or delivered. Isn't that what we want? Yes. So this prompted then Paul to argue that the gospel treasure... The glory of Jesus Christ in the salvation scheme of God has been put into clay jars. Fragile, weak vessels. There in verse 7 of uh, chapter 4. And he says he did so in order that the surpassing power of the gospel might be understood as belonging to God and not to the vessels of clay. I'm I'm nothing. I'm just a jar of clay. But the gospel of Jesus Christ that he's put into me is a glorious thing. And if it does anything in you, you can thank God for it because his power has enabled it. Not me. And this led then to showing that the hardships experienced—he was hard pressed. He describes four things here: hard pressed, Thalipsis. But he and, and he responds to it by saying not crushed. By which he then, I think, was referring to the to the torture that some had used to inflict. I believe it was the Romans themselves that did it—that often to inflict upon their enemies. And to get them to to give up information is to spread them out and then lay a heavy rock on their chest, and then ask them, "All right, are you going to tell me, you're going to give up some information here that I need." And when they said no, they put another rock on it in the heart, to uh, to make it the weight more difficult, and they kept piling on rocks like that until finally the weight of them crushed the man. Paul says, this is what we've experienced. We've been hard-pressed. And we've been perplexed. Perplexing is a mental state. where I don't understand this. I can't figure out what's going on. I I had put my hope in some people and now they disappoint me. And I tried this and it didn't work, etc. I've been perplexed. And then the third word he uses, pursued, chased, like an animal being hunted, pursued in the hunt, and finally thrown down like a like in a wrestling match. I like wrestling. I like to watch these guys go at it. They get around each other and they're looking at each other and they faking their moves at each other and backing off and going around. And sometimes the whole first uh, two minutes of the, of the match is just they're dancing around looking at each other. <laughs> but there's that point in which one of them look goes for the kill, so to speak, <laughs> and grabs the guy and throws him down. Boom! And boy, I tell you what, I've seen some guys throw him down and there was a Boom! You wondered, uh oh, is he hurt? Ah, but Paul said, wait, listen to me. I want you to hear this. No, what would then normally be devastating? But be but due to the hope and faith that we have in God, they it didn't end. Yes, we were crushed. I mean, we were pressed on but not crushed didn't end in crushing it didn't end in my giving up any information either and we were perplexed but we never despaired we were overtaken in the hunt but not killed we were not overtaken excuse me and we were chased but not never overtaken and then we were thrown down but never destroyed see believers must experience the continual reenactment of christ's sufferings this is is an interesting point jesus suffered for us now it's our turn to suffer for him not redemptively obviously but paul says that the dying of Jesus may be born in our own flesh. Our bodies reveal the dying of Jesus. There, so he says there in verses 11 and 12, Always carried about in the body the death of, of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus... Also, may be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So, death is at work in us, so that life may work in you. Wow. And the source of Paul's strength and courage in these trials is then developed. He says, I have the same spirit of faith that is that David had, because he cites here from Psalm 100, he actually quotes Psalm 116, verse 10. I believed. And so I spoke. Both David and Paul's confidence was, as ours must be, placed in the present work of the Holy Spirit and the future hope of transformation. This brought Paul to, to a reassessment. We do not lose heart. This world's a hostile place. It's full of disease, destruction, and decay. Nothing is permanent. Everything demands constant maintenance and upkeep. Although nothing is very accommodating, most human beings want to be comfortable, or at least to make the best of it. But here, Christians, on the other hand, have a great hope. And here is where, in the first epistle, Paul Wrote, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 1 Corinthians 15 19. Is your hope only in this life? Every once in a while I hear people talking about that. You know, we got to make the best of it, got to be happy. And, you know, I know circumstances are not real good, but we got to make the best of it. Oh, I'm sorry for you. Because this isn't the end. And sadly for them, making the best of it here is not going to help them there. Believers must not only face a naturally hostile environment, they must also live with spiritual animosity. That is, being rejected for what we believe. Yes. My, so this present world is neither to be loved by us love not the world neither the things that are in the world nor should we expect to be that we shall be loved by it. We're hated Jesus said they hated me they're going to hate you too. So the focus then and the expected fulfillment of our present lives then must be Jesus himself. And here's the point. And this is where Paul concludes this. We must find in Jesus our all in all to encourage us to keep our focus on him. He prevents us from being comfortably comfortable and allowing us then to face trials and hostility. So we we'll keep our eye on him. And this is what Paul learned, and now is explained in these verses before us. So let's consider them. First of all, a present understanding. This is chapter fifteen, chapter excuse me, four verse sixteen through chapter five verse one. When when we understand what God is doing, we can walk by faith and not lose heart. That's the point. Paul says, "Here's what you need to learn. You need to learn." To understand what God is doing. Then that enables you to walk by faith and not lose heart. Paul explains that what we experience is the wasting away of our outer self. In effect, we are two parts in the same place. I, I, re, I like to think of us as a dichotomous individuals. We're dichotomous. We are flesh and spirit. Flesh and spirit. Or as Paul refers to it here, the outer self and the inner self. The outer self and the inner self. believers, The believer's outer self is wasting away while his inner self, the spirit, is being renewed through the Word of God and through the work of the Holy Spirit to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, causing then us then to be transformed into Christ's image. We don't often we we can't see that too well because we're confined to this outer tent that's wasting away. But that's what's going on. Philippians one six, great verse He who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. He's begun a good work in you. And He's going to bring it to its completion when He comes back again. Hold on to that. So this inner and outer person then corresponds to Paul's flesh and spirit that he discusses there, particularly in in Romans 8. But here we have this contrast. Paul was created out of the dust. And as a man of dust, he sinned, condemning the whole of his offspring to live in this corrupted flesh. In me, that is in my flesh, Paul says, dwells no good thing. It's doomed to death and destruction. The soul that sins, it shall die. And I don't care how godly you are. You, you're going to die if Jesus doesn't come back and get you before that. You're going to die. I go to funerals. I just went to a funeral. A godly man. See, this is the point. We are doomed to death and destruction and Jesus, the second man, and here's here's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus, the second man and the last Adam, came from heaven as a life-giving spirit. And he did so to rescue his own. So we read here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 48, as the man of dust as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Wow. 1 Corinthians 15, 48 and 49. So how is this possible? Paul answers this question in his resurrection chapter, there in verses 50 and Through fifty three, there First Corinthians fifteen. I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery: we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality yeah that's part of God's promise in our salvation so when I get up from my chair and my knees are hurting or my hip I say just hang on Jeff this mortal must put on immortality I'm going to be running around the streets of heaven like a five-year-old kid. Yeah. Yeah. So that brings me to this point. Our spiritual self then must have a body that corresponds to the Spirit. God created in you a new new self. You have now a spiritual self. But it's still living in this flesh. And that's what Paul says when he says, in this flesh dwells no good thing. And how to perform that which is good, I don't find. will is present with me, he says. But how to perform that which is good, I do not find. So then he said, I thank God that He's created a new law, of the law of the Spirit of life, who enables me then to walk, not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And that's the point. And this is, this is the whole point. See, Paul was a leather worker, and his secular trade was tent making. So he uses this to draw his analogy that the outer person is a tent. Temporary, destructible, due to sin and its effects. There in chapter 5, verse 1. At the same time, the daily renewal provokes a glorious hope for a permanent and indestructible dwelling place. Not a tent. We're not going to be in a tent anymore. And no matter how severe the affliction we're called upon to endure, the comparison with the eternal glory that awaits us makes the trials, as Paul says, light and momentary. They don't seem like it at the time, but that's what they are. That's quite a statement. Particularly from Paul, who tells us that there in the 11th chapter, verses 23 to 29, Of his experiencing imprisonments, countless beatings, near death experiences, stoning, shipwreck, constant danger as he traveled from from uh, the lawless, and then regularly lacking essentials of food and rest. Paul could said he could do this because he kept his eyes not on the things that are seen. But to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are seen unseen are eternal. Wow, that's how we gotta live. We've got to live every day, keeping our eyes focused on the things that are eternal. Jesus has prepared for us a new dwelling place of his own a building from God, eternal in the heavens, according to chapter 5, verse 1. This replacement is a house from God who is eternal. It is not made with hands. That is, it's free from all temporal characteristics. And therefore, thirdly, it is eternal in the heavens. Isn't that glorious? You know, when I get older, I look back, on my life, and I say, where did it go? I look back on the week. I say, man, here's Sunday. Tomorrow's Monday. Got a new week before me. And then, what happened? It's Saturday night. <laughs> what, what, where'd the week go? And when I see myself, this outer tent degrading, uh, I say, yeah, but oh, praise the Lord, the day's coming when the, I'm going to get a new dwelling place and it will never hurt. And it's not going to lose its memory. <laughs> I'm not going to forget things. And I'm going to have a perfect understanding and perfect vision of God. and Wow, I'm going to see Him in it. Wow. So that brings me then secondly here to the, to the present desiring. This is verses five to, uh, 2 to 5 of chapter 5. While our spirit then has, has been regenerated through the new birth and it desires spiritual and eternal things, we are still confined to this earthly tent. And this causes us to groan. Paul says we groan. In this tent we groan or that's it means to sigh. It's not wrong to sigh <laughs> with longing to be put upon with a new and heavenly dwelling. This is the proper response, not despairing, but responding to the present limitations and disabilities of our present condition with longing for the res, for the resurrection and to be clothed upon with our heavenly tent. So Paul Spoke of those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He says, Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory is their shame. Their minds set on earthly things. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. And this he contrasts with those whose citizenship is in heaven, and from it away to Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform their lowly body to be made like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to, to subject all things to Himself. That's Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Now, one thing Paul speaks about here is naked, that, we, that we're that we not naked. What was he talking about there? Because obviously the body, we clothe the body, and if my spirit is without the body, how is it naked? But what he doing here, he is—he is uh, he's using uh, hes actually dealing with the error of those who were who were his enemies, who were beginning to hold doctrines that will later be developed by the Gnostics into full-blown Gnosticism. And they taught that when we die, we become disembodied spirits because whatever is material. Has to be naturally sinful and detestable so we're not going to have anything we're not going to have any material body in eternity we'll be spirits spirits like this unseen realm no Jesus has a body a glorified body and he's sitting in heaven with that material glorified body and you're going to have another one just like his. Paul says we're not going to be disembodied spirits. No. So, this concept is clearly contrary to Scripture. And it's also uh, contrary to Buddha. There's a lot of people who like to follow the Eastern religions, and especially Buddhism. What is Buddha taught? Buddha taught that, we're, that the goal of man is to reach nirvana. You know what nirvana is? It's a state where we're all merged into one. Uh, and, and as they describe it, a state of the snuffed out candle. Do you want to be just a snuffed out candle merged with everything else and just cease to be, just be oblivious and cease to exist? No. We're going to inherit a body, an eternal body that the Lord has prepared for us. And lastly, the present our present hoping, Paul says, So, so we are of good courage, because we have an earnest of the Spirit to assure us that that what is mortal may be swallowed up of life. Verses four and five. Two things guarantee this transformation. One, God is working for, for us, therefore it cannot fail. And number two, the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a Earnest, a down payment. An araban. In the uh, Greek, in, it's interesting, in, in the modern Greek language, this term, ara, araban, describes an engagement ring. We're wearing an engagement ring. Our heavenly engagement ring. And he's promised us that the marriage is coming. Understanding then the nature of things, we know that now we are here in a sense absent from the Lord. We're we're really not. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But Paul describes it here as we're absent from the Lord. I don't see Him. I cannot feel Him. I, I, I don't have a sense of Him. But he's there anyway but here we don't have that sense of him as present with him in glory and it is used here in the sense as stated in hebrew these all died not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth that's what i am here can't wait to see my father I'm traveling through this land waiting to see him. And a believer can then n- never be truly absent from the Lord, as I said before. As Jesus said in Hebrews thirteen five, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then thirdly, and lastly, in the present state, we are to walk by faith and not by sight. I just trust him. I I read what he says, and I said, That's true. That's it's it's the word is true, and I and the Savior is true and I trust him. We do not see him or feel him, and although we are looking, as it were, through, Paul describes it as looking through an obscure mirror. Now, here, this is interesting. The King James translates that glass, looking through a glass darkly, an obscure glass. Here's the the truth of it mirrors in Paul's day were not made of glass, (laughs) they were made of metal how do you look through a metal mirror? How can you see through a metal mirror? All you can see is a reflection. And even then, it was not real clear. And that's what he's talking about. We see a reflection in in, in this old metallic mirror that gives us some indication, but it's not real clear. We see it through a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And the attitude then that separates true believers from mere professors is that, is that his children would rather be away from the body and to be present with the Lord. I'm glad I'm here today. and glad I'm here with you. And I'm going to enjoy my fellowship with you. But if I had my druthers, I'd rather be in heaven with my Savior. And that ought to be your attitude as well. Oh, away from the body and at home with the Lord. That's Verse 8. However, in the meantime, Paul says in verses 9 and 10, we make it our aim to please Him. We make it our aim to please Him. Is that that your goal in life? What's your goal in life? Oh, to earn money? To have a big house? to, uh, uh, To be this or that? Or, you know, somebody famous? Or something like that? What is your aim in life? To please Him. So that when... I see him, he's going to greet me with a smile and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. We make it our aim to please him. And then he he gives us a warning. We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to stand in judgment one of these days so that each may receive what his due what he has done in the body, whether good or evil, or literally worthless. I'm afraid there's going to be some believers in Jesus Christ that are going to be standing before the judgment seat and watch all of their life work being burned up. And they're going to be saved, yet so is by fire. How embarrassing that will be watch everything you valued in this world go up in a puff of smoke. Wouldn't it be much right, much better, much better if you gave up this world and focused on Jesus so that the things that are done in the flesh will redound to the glory of God and will be gold and silver and precious stone that will last forever. Father, I thank you. I thank You for these wonderful words of the Apostle Paul penned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and given to Your saints through the ages to read and to take hope and confidence. We do not lose heart. We walk with courage even in this difficult, wicked, God-hating world of evil. Trials and struggles, sickness and sorrow. But Lord, the day is coming when we're going to hear Jesus say, I'm here to get you. And I'm going to clothe you with an eternal tabernacle. A body made without hands, eternal in the heavens. Just like his glorious body. To be with him forever. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Amen.